0: Amen. All right. This is a non-rhetorical greeting. Do you know what that means? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. A little enthusiasm from the front row over here. I appreciate that. Um, hey, we're in the book of First Peter. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And so um, uh, we are going to be dealing with a subject that I, I, ne- I need for you to make sure you hear me rightly. And, I, and I'm honestly gonna do the best that I can not to, not to be sarcastic in any way, shape, or form, because I think that sometimes can be confusing on difficult topics. Um, and so I'm gonna try to suppress that. So hopefully what comes out is just straight and you're not having to filter it too, too much. But we are gonna be talking about some passages regarding marriage that I think are often uh, poorly misunderstood and lead to, at times, some abuses within the context of the church. And this is very much on our minds. Uh, if you're keeping up with anything at all, it's not just the Me Too movement, there's now a hashtag called Church Too. Uh, and if you're keeping up with what's going on at Willow Creek, uh, their entire elder board has just resigned as well as their entire pastoral staff in the wake of Bill Hybels uh, being confronted uh, with some, uh, some things that he's done over the years that are not okay. And so um, I wanna make sure that we are circumspect and we're careful with this text, we should probably be that way every week, uh, and, and maybe uh, that's something I should should really think about. But um, I, I want us to make sure. So, if you hear something you think's off, make sure you come talk to me about it and make sure. Hey, is it? Did you mean that when you said that? Uh, if it strikes you as odd, all right, or if you need further clarification, we want to always be a church that's open to continuing the conversation. We're talking about eternity, so rarely should we leave here and be like, Oh yeah, yeah, eternity, got it, check. Trinity, three and one, easy. I'm not even sure what we're talking about anymore. Um, and so let's, let's be careful as we enter into this text, uh, by way of continuing to keep, uh, in tension the things that Peter has said to us thus far, which is very much the context of what he's going to be talking about in terms of the marital relationships or really the closest relationships, because I think this actually applies very much to us, not just as married people, but as those, for those of you who are single, there's much that Peter is saying to you that I think is very important as well. And so I wanna make sure we we hear that in the fullest context. But remember, all of this is predicated on what we've talked about being the indicative of God's love. So there is no imperative, there is no telling you something to do without first telling you that you are loved. And that's critical. God is, is not opposed to us making effort in the Christian life. What he's opposed to is us thinking we have earned anything by the Christian life. That makes sense? He's not opposed to us effort in terms of cultivating and, and working out our salvation with fear and trembling and cultivating discipleship. What he doesn't want us thinking is that that increases or decreases his love for us once it has been bestowed upon us. And that is good news to us. It sets us free to actually try things knowing that we're sometimes going to fail. Uh, One of the besetting sins is we still are haunted by this idea that somehow, some way, we can be perfect. And we just can't. And we prove it over and over and over again. Yes, we would like a nice, long, clean stretch run without bad things happening. But where are you? You live in a fallen world. You're in elect exile. And so uh, that phraseology is important for us. We have to first remember who we are in reference to our relationship with God, which means that he has loved us first. He bestowed his love upon us in pure grace, not because of anything that was warranted within us, not because, and that's just hard for us. Some of you, that very much is a very deep, resonant amen in your heart. For some of you, you're thinking, that just don't make sense because you can't love like that. You are unable, I, we all are unable to love unconditionally. So we can't get our heads around how some being could. Closest we probably come is in parenting. Uh, and, And even then, sometimes it's a real struggle. There's a real dissonance sometimes because you look across and you think, if you weren't my kid but because you are my kid, I may still. Uh, and so, and so we, have to, uh, we have to be careful that we don't shackle God with our limitations when it's he who's trying to set us free from our limitations in union with Christ by, because of his love for us. The other important piece of that is our relationship to the world. We are exiles. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we are unconcerned with the nature and the things that go on in the world. In fact, that is very much the tone of this passage about marriage. We have to be concerned with how our Christianity is affecting those around us. So often I think that we think our Christianity is a get out of the world free card to be able to kind of pull back away from those sorry sinners, um, forgetting that Jesus was a friend of who? Saints, right? That's what it says. No, who's he a friend of? And it confused the tar out of the Pharisees. They couldn't figure out why in the world he would eat and touch and let people like that touch him. And what did he say? I didn't come for the well or the righteous. I came for the sick and the lost. That's who I am friends with. In fact, the Old Testament says, if you want to know what God is doing, go where the broken and the hurting are. Don't pull out of all that. And so, so often I think that we think that that allows us a curious distance, a cleaner distance, when actuality, Christianity says, no, now you're actually equipped with a true hazmat suit to go into the heart of darkness, to go into the broken things, to actually dwell with people who are in agony, whether it's mental or physical or spiritual or all of the above. We ought to be the kind of people who befriend and don't give up on the friendships that we have with people who are hurting. And so that is really the tone of this passage as Peter is transitioning from the things that Robbie shared with us last week. We are called to have some respect for the governance that is over us and to submit to it in a way that makes society better. And as he told you, it's not a zero sum, it's not that you do that unthinkingly or unbiblically, But you are to be considerate and to walk through those things and think first and foremost about mission and not constitution. And he said that as workers, we are to submit to those who have power over us. uh, And so we are to actually try to make where we work a better place and not subterfuge, and not try to get our own way, and not because we don't necessarily like the boss. Notice there was no qualification there. You can act like a Christian if he's nice, or or she's nice. No, you are to act like a Christian because you are an elect exile. And then he told us something that's going to be very important for these passages that we're going to read, is that this is the way that Christ did it and why. So we're gonna actually take time to read those because there's gonna be a key phrase to both the wives and the husbands. It's going to say likewise. And the likewise has to do with the person and work of Christ and we need to remember that. But let me ask you this question first. How has your being or becoming a Christian affected your relationship with others who aren't Christians? Because it does whether it's a family member or a neighbor or a co-worker, right? It just does. It affects those things. And have you really thought about it in terms of their greater good as opposed to what you're wanting to accomplish or you are trying to notch or you're trying to do in your own strength and power have you ever invited somebody to, to, to like, you you of work up finally to the invitation and you say, all right, here we go. Come to church Sunday and they're like, nope. Okay, it's weird from here on, right? Or they come and they're like, what in the world sort of craziness did you invite me to? These people talking back to the screens as if someone is there, they're singing songs that are just, I don't even know what's going on, I don't know what we're talking about, it feels weird. And that messes with your relationship from then on in some measure, unless you had a firm foundation built greater than the invitation. And so it is important that our greatest concern is that we live out, we have been empowered, we've been set free to live for the greater good of the other. And this is where marriage is not unique to this. This is for everybody in the room, married or not. Your Christianity should not destabilize your present relationships. Your Christianity should not make uh, non-Christians uh, uh, just just feel nauseated when they see you coming. Now. There's some measure of this that, that they're rebellious and, and they, they're, there's a hatred for God on their part in some measure or a distance from God or a struggle of some kind. They've got baggage from other Christians that you're not gonna do anything about except to abide and be there for a long period of time and give them another something to deal with, hopefully not more baggage for the next poor person that comes along. And so I get it, there's some stuff on their part too, right? However, we as Christians, this is what Peter's trying to tell us, you don't come out of the world, you go deeper into the world. You actually become a greater asset to the world because you're a Christian. You are a greater, stabilizing, compassionate, steadfastly loving, forgiving force in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the thing I would challenge us to think about in all of our relationships that are regular is, are you that presence? Are you a greater stabilizer? Are you a source of comfort and compassion to those around you? When there's something going on at work, do they come to you and and seek wisdom or advice or a comforting word? Are you easy to be around, pleasant to be around? Are you just like everybody else complaining about your marriage or complaining about your circumstance or complaining about the government or complaining about the Falcons or complaining about the Braves who've dropped three straight and messing up the whole race with the Phillies or you, you, whatever it is that you complain about? Or do we have something more to offer because of the eternity that dwells in our veins, the resurrection to which we have been given and transformed? so this is what Peter is calling for us to do in every circumstance that we're in. Marriage is gonna be unique here. There's, there's a particular context to this that's very important for us because oftentimes I think these verses get ripped out of context. There are times that I think we say in a very heavily patriarchal way, what it says right there, you got to submit. Women first, I mean, I, you, you do that first, I might try to understand you. It's just the order of things. I can't get to verse seven without verses one through six. And so it's important that we recognize the actual societal context that he's speaking into, but it still has something to say to us today. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. Um, So it's gonna be important that we hear that. So what I want you to get from this is that we are called to cultivate relationships through living in service for the good of others that they may be one to Christ and by promoting their protection as fellow heirs, lest our prayers be hindered. That's who we should be. Now, if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. I'm gonna start in chapter two, verses 21 through 25 because this gives us the context for the word likewise, which we find in 3.1. If you would, hear the reading of God's word. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving an example You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, the context here is so critical. So what's happening here is that the gospel has, has had an impact on the, the regions to which they've been scattered. And so there were some, some who had converted women who were wives of husbands who uh, in many ways had a different belief system. So it's important, I'm gonna pause here actually and read Karen Job's uh, quote, which is in your, in your handout, because I think it's important for us to have context of what's happening. In a masterful move, Peter both upholds and subverts the social order. Peter's concern that Christian wives continue to submit to their own husbands not only shields Christianity from the accusation that it is a social evil, but is also clearly motivated by evangelistic intent. Now, what she's saying is, is that Peter is both saying, listen, you must uphold the societal norms in some way that is beneficial and stabilizing. However, there's a way in which there's going to be a subversion as if it were leaven, which is what we are called to be in society, that is going to begin to change things and take things over. It's happening at the same time. So what he's saying is, he's actually pointing forward in some measure to something he's going to talk about in 2 Peter. You had a bunch of false teachers who were going around, right? And oftentimes, the people that they would target were wives who were at home all day. I didn't just say they didn't do any work and that being a housewife doesn't mean you're working. But they had easier access to them, just like a vacuum cleaner salesman is more than likely going to get a wife at two o'clock in the afternoon than he is a husband. Although many of you husbands work from home now, but we don't have vacuum cleaner salesmen anymore. Maybe that's why. They all went away. And so, so what they would do is they would, these false teachers would go around and they were preying on new Christians. And so what would happen is you have a new Christian, they would say, oh, you're a Christian, let's add some stuff to that. That's what false teaching is. It's not uh, Islam, it's not these other things. Those are false teachings, by the way, but the false teachers would capitalize on their new Christianity. The other thing that would happen is this, is sometimes when a wife would convert, she would begin to think, why am I stuck with this old pagan ball and chain? He doesn't understand my religion. He doesn't wanna go to synagogue. He doesn't wanna go to worship. And so therefore, she would begin to think, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't my life be better if I were in agreement? Now, these women had not yet heard Paul's admonition to not be unequally yoked more than likely. But still, that was in the water. Now, do we see that today? This happens a lot in the church where oftentimes a spouse, and it's not just women, by the way, but a spouse will get caught up in someone's teaching and it's new and it's fresh and and, and it's different and it makes them feel special in some way, shape, or form. And they begin to look on their spouse as dead weight because their spouse isn't into it. They're not wanting to go to all the different conferences. They're not wanting to get in the online chat rooms. They're not wanting to read the books. They're not wanting to get into all the talks and all this stuff. And so what happens is they begin to look down on the other What Peter is essentially saying here is Christianity should never make you look down on someone else, never. And if if you are married and convert and your husband has not yet converted, it is your calling by virtue of that covenant to stay in that marriage for the greatest good of that husband. He didn't just become all bad just because you converted and he didn't. And so the calling is stay in close relationship with him, serving him for the greater good. Let me tell you what this is not saying. You gotta do everything he says. You gotta, so this is not a call to do everything that your husband tells you because he said it, that does it, we're done. He says, make me a sandwich, you go make him a sandwich. Now, if you choose to do that, that's your business, but, but that's not what this is saying here. What it's saying is s- submit... To his need for eternity. Submit to his need for redemption and restoration and think through how that might be lived out for his eternal good. And that is not easy. And Peter understands that because he puts it in, and look at what he says. Likewise, as Christ suffered for you and your redemption, so you are to also suffer for the redemption of those closest to you. Here's the good news. The good news is you don't have to repeat the crucifixion. You don't have to figure out how to be perfect and rise from the dead because Jesus has imputed or given or granted or covered you in his righteousness. Amen? And so you don't have to repeat all that part. What you get to do is out of the storehouse of the power of the Holy Spirit and all that comes with that resurrection, redemption, which is all the stuff Peter has said to us previously, a wife can live in such a way that even her deeds is going to win her husband to the faith. For those of you who are not married, this means stay friends with your closest friends. You don't give them up because they don't go to worship service. You don't give them up because they don't understand the lyrics to the latest David Crowder song. You don't give them up because they haven't read The Shack. You don't give them up because they don't know who Calvin is. You continue in relationship with them. Because what you're saying to them is you matter more than anything in this world. That's what God said to you in Christ. Christ. Now, there are circumstances where it's no longer healthy. And I understand that. I'm not talking about the tail ends of the bell curve where you've got, uh, if you're a recovering addict, right, and you convert, it it becomes harder to hang with a friend group that's ripping and running and wiling. I get it. But that doesn't mean you cut them off. You can still text them. You can still call them. You can still be in a relationship with them that may look different for your greater good, for your health but you don't give them up in toto unless it's absolutely necessary. And you ought to do that seeking wise counsel, that ought to be really thought through. But in this way, he's saying, just because you've become a Christian and it's new to you, don't go trying to to find a better husband who better fits with your belief system. Now, I wanna talk about the adorning aspect of this because I think this has been misused, right? We've said, hey, Ladies, do us a favor, dress a certain way because uh, we're, we're, we're struggling. I mean, we, we, we're not gonna do any work on ourselves. We're not gonna work on our own virtues, our own sexuality, our own chastity. But if you would do all the heavy lifting for us, that'd be great. So uh, we're gonna start handing out potato sacks every Sunday for everyone. One size will fit all, I promise you. And guess what the male mind will figure out? How to love ankles how to love ankles, or how to love if the light hits that potato sack just a certain way. And so that's not what this is saying at all. In fact, what this is saying is something very important that needs to be said to us today in our culture, because it was true in that culture too. It's saying to the the wives, to the women of that time, you are not a commodity. Did you hear that? You are not a commodity to be trafficked for any reason whatsoever. And so what you you want to do is cultivate something that would have been actually not not normal during their time. You wanna cultivate the inner life and mind as a disciple. You want to grow because he's gonna say something very important later on. He's gonna use the term co-heir. Now, which of you would want uh, a co-heir raising your children um, who is not very intelligent? Who, who only knows how uh, to, to read uh, the shortest of articles about beauty tips and otherwise. And I'm not saying that's all bad, by the way. But that's all they know. And all they know is that they are sex objects. Is that, what, that who you want raising your children? Better that you would invest, and they'd be invested in, in their minds and their hearts and their spirits so that they would be the strongest of co-heirs, worthy of the image that they bear along with you. There is no difference in the bearing of the image based on gender. And so we would do well to stop participating in the commodification of one another, and men, how you think about your wives is so critical. How you think about other people in the church. Again, this is not a statement of it's all on y'all to handle the, the rampant sexuality of the male mind. No, it is don't let yourself be a commodity. It's not, it's not saying you can't braid your hair. But in that day, what he was talking about is to basically, uh, what was happening is is they were dressing up in such a way to try to woo another husband, possibly a Christian husband, better than the one they had. So what he was saying is don't do that. Don't let yourself be a commodity. Work out the inner life. Now, I wanna read to you uh, a passage from a book I've, I've quoted to you before. I wanna commend it to you. Uh, it's uh, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. And for those of you who have any knowledge of history, you're thinking, hold on a second, do we need to grab the family and run? Because that sounds feminist. She was first wave feminist who was actually arguing for exactly what Peter's arguing for. And what she was arguing for is the, the growth and intelligence of women and how that actually helps men because if they are left to commodification, what they're going to do is rise up and use what is left to them, which is something called cunning. Now, cunning means that they will always be subverting. This was actually true in the South uh, during the slave era. Oftentimes, slaves would act really dumb but we're actually controlling things as things went on because master didn't understand what was really going on and how they were being treated. And in the same way, if you oppress people, they're gonna gonna always rise using cunning. And you're never gonna have anything real. And it's always gonna be types and shadows and nothing of substance. And it's gonna be just this one giant game of thrones, if you will. Everybody destroying everybody in the end. Spoiler alert. All right, so... What does Mary Wollstonecraft say? Now, you gotta understand the time in which she's writing this. this is the late 1700s in Britain where women were not allowed to be educated. And so uh, this lack of education meant that they, the only hope they had was to get married and make sure they hopefully married fairly well. Uh, and that was really all they had. But, but somehow she snuck out all that. But here's what she says, uh, and, and again, She's, it's worth you listening. It's a, it's a lengthy quote, but, but I'm gonna read it all here. Women are everywhere in this deplorable state for in order to preserve their innocence as ignorance, ignorance is courteously termed, truth is hidden from them. They are made to assume an artificial character before their faculties have acquired any strength. Let me pause right there. What she's saying is they've been turned into a commodity so young that their faculties have actually not had any chance to flourish or blossom. They're not allowed to to learn as the boys have learned. And so all they're left to is to try to manufacture their beauty, which we have felt the weight of in our culture. It goes on to say, Taught from their infancy that beauty is woman's scepter. The mind shapes itself to the body and roaming round its gilt cage only seeks to adorn its prison. Men here uh, have various employments and pursuits which engage their attention and give a character to their opening mind. But women are confined to one and having their thoughts constantly directed to the most insignificant part of themselves, seldom extend their views beyond the triumph of the hour. And what she's saying is that's bad for all of society. That to have one uh, part of God's image bearing be less than the other part is bad for everyone involved. And so what Peter is saying here is the exact same thing. He's saying, do not let yourself be commodified. Do not let yourself be twisted up in the ways of the world. Do not let yourself be reduced to something less than. You were worthy of the death of Christ who died for you. And likewise, you in his name get to go have an eternal impact. And he quotes about Sarah. So what he's saying is that women have had a tremendous impact on the advancement of the kingdom from the start. There is no lineage without Sarah. Abraham wasn't allowed to supernaturally pollinate himself as some creatures are able to do. He wasn't. Sarah was critical. Yes, she actually participated in the ruining of the covenant in the greatest way possible. But she, like Abram, got a new name and was forgiven in the same way, in the same moment, under the same covenant. And she played a critical role in the continuation of the redemptive story, as do you all. And so this is Peter saying, you have power. Your husband's religion, which in that culture would have determined your religion has been subverted. However, you're not gonna use that subversion of power to destabilize everything because what will happen is that it will be seen as bad for society. Persecution was coming as it was. But he was saying, don't throw gasoline on the fire when that's actually not gonna do anything of value to you or anyone else. Instead, be leaven. See your husband redeemed because you are worthy of the image of God. The fact that Peter is addressing women in a letter is subversive, you understand? The fact that he would address them first without the covering of their husbands is very subversive. But for the purpose of creating greater stability for all of society, he has a very high view, very high view of women in that culture who were nothing more than commodity for the most part. With a few exceptions. What a great and wonderful message for us today who find ourselves in the convulsions of, like I said, me too, and the calling for the death of the patriarchy, which means that that, and again, you do know that Christianity's firmly at the center of that whirlwind. So how we live matters. And so. What do unbelievers think about Christianity based on your behavior? You ever ask one? Do you have the courage to ask one? Do you know any, by the way? Might be the better question. And what stabilizing and improving uh, impact are you having in your various spheres of influence? That's a great question for you to really think through. In the various places where you are, what stabilizing force are you because of your confidence in the firm foundation? That's why we're saying that Christ is the church's one firm foundation. Without that, there is no stability. You are not a stabilizing force apart from union with Christ. Not for long. You can do good things, you can make things better, but as far as having eternal impact, that is reserved to Christ alone and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so how are you stabilizing all the places where you are? How are you bringing in uh, uh, having an, an impact that says, "I am here for the greater good of this, you, my neighbors." And so that's something we all can do. That's not just reserved for wives. But he begins here because of their, the unique situation in their culture. Now, he turns to the husbands and he says these words. Listen at verse 7. Likewise. Likewise what? Likewise the wives or likewise Jesus? Likewise Jesus and the wives too. All of that that comes before. In the same way, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman. As the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I again think we have greatly distorted this idea of the weaker vessel and its understanding. Um, it does not. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean straight away. It does not mean that women have a lesser intellect. It does not mean that that women are are not. They're just not good speakers. Um, It doesn't mean that they they can't do certain things that men can do. And it's not a reference uh, to anything other than position. It's a positional statement. And the position actually comes from society. And if you notice, Peter subverts it. But before we get there, you gotta live in an understanding way first. But what is it that the husband's supposed to understand? Well, he's supposed to understand how society and Christianity are affecting his wife. He is to understand the unique burdens that are being placed on her because she has grown up, in this case, in a society that has commodified her and treated her in such a way that she is not able to stand on her own, not because of anything inherent within her, but because society has generationally deemed it to be so. Heavily patriarchal society in this case. And so he's saying, you need to understand what it is that she goes through. And you need to be quick to assuage and lift that burden from her shoulders. You are to, in such a way, live with her, not demanding, but as lead servant, building her up as Christ loved the church. You are to know what she needs. You are to know what builds her up. You are to know what tears her down and not engage in it as the world is going to do in this case every single solitary day. But our culture is so much better than that, right? We're doing so much better than that, right? Doesn't every magazine make you feel better? Doesn't every Instagram post? Doesn't every Facebook post? Doesn't every article on how to be an awesome parent like me No, doesn't, doesn't just how the world looks at you. Listen, I am not attractive. Uh, I'm old. Uh, My hair is falling out. My skin's not that great. I I am a weird shape that I've never been before. Uh, My clothes do weird stuff. I've got shirts that I can't raise my hands. Otherwise you discover I've got belly button lint. I can get up in the morning, take a shower, put on a hat, and I can face the world. I don't think about any of that. Now, you may think, well, that was weird. You just talked about it a pretty bit. Now nah, it's just fact. I just ain't gonna worry about it. My wife, on the other hand, is not because of any certain neurosis within her, it's gonna take a lot longer because the world looks at her different. If she goes out, somebody might actually say something to her. I've never had anybody come up to me and go, get ready quick today, didn't you, soldier? <laughs> it didn't take a whole lot of time. But if she, if she shows up somewhere not wearing makeup, isn't it interesting? Somebody may say something. They may feel the liberty to come up and say, you doing okay? <laughs> you sick? Based on appearance. So our society is equally as, uh, in many respects, weighing down upon our wives. Husbands. You need to strive, you need to cultivate, you need to uh, come to understand these things and love her in such a way that it takes some of that burden off of her, doesn't place it further on her. Now, lest you think otherwise, I am a ridiculous hypocrite in this matter. I have failed on this on many occasions. Now, fortunately, Susan has a great sense of humor and realizes that, you know, I was even mean to Kelly last week. You can't be mean to pregnant people. What's wrong with me? It's not my wife, but still, it's not okay. Um, and so, so we, we need to grow in this regard. We need to recognize and, and build up, which is what you're called to do, lest your prayers be hindered. Now, here's the problem for many of us. We don't pray enough for that to matter, now does it? We ain't praying, so what? My prayers, I don't pray, so hinder it. That's not okay. That means you're not growing. You can't grow. Here's what Peter's saying. If, if she's not being cared for, you can't grow. No way, no how. I don't care how you do it. You can't. It's inaccomplishable. It cannot happen. And so when he says weaker vessel, what he's saying is, by society standards, by virtue of the fact that she could not in that society go out and get a job making enough money to sustain herself. And in fact, if she were to be unyoked in that society, she becomes potentially prey. She's gonna be looked down upon. She's gonna be seen as less than, something broken. For those of you who are widowed and or divorced, you know this all too well. And we the church at times have not loved you very well either, and I'm sorry. And so, this is something we are still wrestling with. So, when he says the weaker vessel, what he's saying is, because the world has said she is so. Now, is there also just a truth to just brute physical strength? Yes. But that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is societal position. So, he's saying, that's why it's so subversive for him to say, because she is your heir along with you in the grace of life. That means she has access to all the same benefits you do. That means Ephesians 1, where it says we have access to all the spiritual blessings, that's to everyone, not uniquely males, to then decide to dole out, like I have access to it, and I'll, I'll dole you out some when I decide. No, 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 no. Not how it works. She doesn't have to go through you. She goes through Christ. You will answer first, Husbands. Because the Lord said, I'm going to have to call somebody to account, and I'm calling you first, just like he did with Adam. He didn't say, Eve, where are you? He said, Adam, where are you? Remember what Adam did? Man, I don't know. You gave her to me. She was broke when I got her. I don't know. And the Lord was like, yeah, you're right. No, no, he had to go first. doesn't mean she's exonerated either. No, it doesn't. And so it's important that we recognize there is nothing because of gender that is withheld in terms of gifting, or um, uh, or being heirs, or spiritual blessing, or image bearing. And if you think so, let's talk. We need to talk. If you have some concern, did you like? Did you say they could preach? I didn't say that. We we have roles that are that are particularly given, right? And the best way to think those through is to recognize there's nothing in the kingdom that you cannot do. Nothing. Preaching is a particular call because I'm gonna be held responsible, Hebrews 13 and the elders as well, for your souls. God's gracious enough to say, I'm gonna let you not have to worry with that one. Just like he's gracious enough to say to us, I'm gonna let you not worry with childbirth. So there are roles, but they're very Few because of God's great grace. Now, does that mean that a woman can't teach? No, that's not what that means. Does it mean that a woman can't be a CEO? No, that's not what that means. In fact, what Peter's arguing for is the freedom to become all that the kingdom allows. However, should we think through the impact that those things have upon us and our families and the society, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. Does it make things more stable? Does it? Does it help? build things up or in some way does it tear down. I don't think it's an automatic that it tears down if a woman becomes high up a CEO or a surgeon or anything else. That's, that's, that's crazy. But we have to think things through. And So here to the wives and the husbands, he's saying, make the world better through what you have. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about the portion specifically to husbands. He says, so concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding way and a loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. Did you just hear that? God is so concerned with how you interact with your wife that he is willing to cut off fellowship with you through your prayer until you get that right. It doesn't mean you're cut off and go to hell, but it does mean you're robbed of one of the great beneficences that Christ died for. Remember, Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. Those of you who don't live with your wives in an understanding way, you are in essence cut off from that throne, functionally, not eternally. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her to take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is spiritual activity pleasing in his sight. Now, I recognize that for some of you, you are in a tough place. And there are just tough circumstances, and I get that. And so if you feel like you're, you're, you're struggling to think through how to do that, this is where welcoming people in. I'm not going to judge you. I've already admitted to you I'm a hypocrite and a terrible husband for the most part. So I can't throw stones at you. But what I might be able to do is learn from you and you from me and iron sharpen iron and let's, let's make the whole community better you do understand that your prayer being cut off hurts all of us. Not just you, not just your family. It hurts the entire church. Same is true for me. So how well do you understand the lives and needs of those closest to you in your various spheres of influence? In in the same way, you don't have to be married to do this. If you are single, then understanding what the the unique pressures that your friends are, are enduring and going through is crucial to friendship. It is crucial to loving other people as you love yourself. But husbands are having to be called to do it in this unique circumstance because we uniquely are bad at it. So we can do this with all of those around us, but we need to be particular as husbands with our wives. What are some ways that you're actively promoting the good of those in your sphere of influence? That means seeking their protection, seeking their justness. We were having a conversation last night with with some friends about Lecrae uh, and some of what he's gone through in terms of the backlash uh, when he, he stopped preaching in a way that the white evangelical church was comfortable. And what he discovered is that no, they looked at him as no, no, we're not here for you. Okay, you're here for us. And so instead of having his greater good in mind, they turned on him and it's been difficult. And that's not my story, that's his to tell. Um, but, but we do that all the time. And I use that just as a very public example. Instead of us having the greater good and the unique pressures that people are going through in mind, we get upset with things that make us uncomfortable. Hey, you're talking in a way that makes me uncomfortable. I gotta be honest with you, the the Me Too Church Too stuff is, is difficult as a leader of a church in a denomination that is heavily patriarchal. And sooner or later, that light beam's gonna land. And how do I reconcile that? How do we be biblical? How do we care for those who are bearing unique pressures? I read the story from Willow Creek about Bill Hybel's stuff, and it broke my heart that so many people let it go on for so long because they kept saying, well, we don't, the church is going so well, we don't want to cause any problems. It's just heartbreaking how manipulative we can be. It's heartbreaking that we don't love each other better than that. And so, how might we do this? How might we as elect exiles bring stability and justice and protection and the greater good to all of those around us, our spheres of influence, most importantly in our marriages as a foundational institution, but you don't have to be married to participate. So, what do we get from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7? We are called to cultivate relationships through living in service for the good of others that they may be won to Christ. And that by promoting their protection as fellow heirs, lest our prayers be hindered. We should care about those around us and what they are going through. We should seek their greater good. We should be out for their greatest interest. Because that's what Christ did. That's the likewise. Christ did this for us. Amen.